Part 3 of the story of Caliph ben Yefune. After the spying ex- expedition of Caliph and Pinchas together, going into the land of Eretz Yisrael, going into the land of Israel, there began a seven-year conquest taking place in the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and the conquering involved a lot of wars, all of which were were successful campaigns, aside for one exception, which was followed by a successful war that Yeshua had been a part of. It's a story of its own. But Kolev was an active part of that war, being a leader of the tribe of, of Yehuda. And when the end of the conquest was over, when the seven years were up, you, um, um, you, the, the tribe of Yehuda, the heads of the tribe of Yehuda, together with Kalev, approached Yehoshua. What's actually interesting is, one of the sources that we know that the conquest took seven years is from the story of Kalev meeting with Yeshua at the end of the seven years. A uh, quick calculation lets us understand that that it was seven years that it took Yehoshua to conquer the land. But the the leaders of the tribe together with the actual leader of the tribe, Kalev ben Yefune himself, approached Yehoshua in a very public setting, and Kalev begins a very interesting and, and complex speech. He says, you know the things that Hashem said to Moshe, a man of Hashem, concerning me and you. And he began telling or hinting to Yehoshua about the famous story about them being spies 45 years earlier. You know, 38 years before they came into Israel, plus seven years of conquest. That's actually how we have the calculations. And Kalev then asked Yoshua in public, Moshe had promised me a, the land of Hebron, which was which had been called the, the city of Kiryas Arba, and he said, I would like to take possession of that land and there's there's a lot of questions that 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 come to us at, at first glance number one why did Kalev make a public scene him and Yeshua were very very close they had been spies together they were the two sole survivors of an entire generation aside from of course the tribe of Levi but from the rest of the Jewish people they were the two sole survivors of an entire generation and Kalev was would have would have been extremely close to Yeshua. Why didn't he just call Yeshua into a private room and say, "Listen, Moshe promised me a land in Hebron. Can we do it?" And it, it seems it seems like there's more going on. To, there's more going to the story from the fact that Kalev made a public scene of it. Additionally. Why was Kalev so insistent? It's almost like Kalev was was trying to grab the land. You know, Kalev should have been a gentle, kind, easygoing type of person, and and he's coming to Yoshua. Why why wouldn't he be more gentle about it? Why wouldn't he be more gentle and and more agreeable? But instead, it's almost like Kalev was demanding it, but he was coming in public. The the rabbis explain like this. Kalev wanted the city of Hebron, and the reason he wanted the city of Hebron wasn't just because he wanted the land. He wanted the land in, in Israel, which, of course, he did want that too. The land of Israel was holy, and Kalev was going to take a part of it, and it had been promised him and all that. But Kalev had another angle, and the angle was Kalev had made a very public display of showing God's greatness, sticking up for God, sticking up for Moshe, and then Moshe and Hashem had promised him an incredible reward to have the holiest city. In the world, the city of Hebron, Yerushalayim hadn't been conquered. Jerusalem was not in Jewish control, not for a few hundred years. And 
Hebron was the city. It was a city of Avram, Nitzchak, Yaakov, where they were buried. It was a city where Adam was buried. It was where Maris and Machpelah was. It was such a big deal. And that was Kala's reward for doing what was right. So when he came to Yeshua, his motive was, he wanted to teach the Jewish people, when you're promised something good, when you're promised to have a reward for doing something, it's going to happen. So it was so personal to Kalev that he saw through the the reward because he wanted to make sure everyone understood that his incredible self-sacrifice, his standing up to the mob, and him you know, going against his ten friends who were the other spies and doing what was right and standing with Moshe and standing with Yeshua was going to be rewarded. He wanted everyone to see that was going to be carried through, that good people do get rewards in the end. So it was so personal to him. And when he came to Yeshua, he demanded that because he wanted to make sure that this was actually seen through and that he could actually make a demonstration of God giving goodness to good people. But it's the, 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 his request of the land of Hefroin was a little more nuanced than just requesting land. And the reason was because every single portion of the land of Israel was all apportioned by lottery. If anyone wanted to get any part of the land of Israel, it had to be by way of lottery, which meant that first the tribes and the families and then the people themselves were all put into lottery boxes. It's a discussion exactly how it worked, whether all of it was in lottery boxes or whether the whether there was only certain sections within the Jewish people that were put into, but everyone's portion essentially came by way of a lottery, by, by a goyro, by a lot. And whether the lottery was also instigated by Eloza, the, the high priest, the son of Aaron, the Kayan Gadol, whether his lights were shining up, whatever way or method it was, it ended up going about, there was a protocol to be had. And the only person who was now coming and asking for the protocol to be broken was Kalev. So it was a very, very tall ask. So when he came, he came accompanied by all the leaders of his tribe, of, of the tribe, you know, all the, the elders of the tribe of Yehuda, the important people of the tribe of Yehuda. And Kalev is making a very public request by Yeshua because what he was asking for was very large. Additionally, his own tribe wasn't very happy about the situation. The, the part of Yehuda was already decided, which meant that Hebron fell into the tribe of Yehuda. Now, they very much wanted to have the city of Hebron, and now Kalev is showing up and saying, by the way, I want to be excluded from the lottery. I just want um, Hebron to be part, part of my territory, and I want the entire city, which is a massive city. And they started getting a little, a little upset about it. They said, wait, hold up. We want to be part of the lottery. We also want the opportunity to have Hebron as part of ourselves. So you, Kalev had to make a public demonstration because he said, if I just do this you know, behind closed doors, just me and Yeshua having a little chat... They're gonna, we're gonna walk out and say, well, this is, this was done. And they'll say, well, no, not for us. We still have problems. Kalev therefore made a massive demonstration, took all the elders of the tribe of Yehuda, went to Yeshua in public, and made this, this, this request to Yeshua in public. And then when Yeshua told him, yes, you could have this land, you could have this land, it had been sanctioned by Yeshua in public, and no one could contest it later on, saying, oh, Yeshua didn't really agree. You know, there, there must be more to the story. There was no more to the story. Everyone watched. Everyone saw the conversation. Everyone saw um, um, Kalev request, and everyone saw Yeshua give his blessing for Kalev to take the land. There was also another motive for Kalev. And this is a, such an incredible, shows you the incredible sensitivity on Kalev's parts. Kalev was an extremely powerful person, and Kalev was so well connected. His wife, who had passed away a year earlier, was Miriam. His brother-in-law, Moshe. His other brother-in-law, Aaron. His father-in-law was Amram, the previous leader of the Jewish people before Aaron and Moshe became the leaders. 
Kali was so unbelievably connected. His great-grandson was Betzalel. His son was Chor, who had been killed by a mob, as we mentioned in the earlier, in the earlier sections of, of this podcast. Kalev had a bit of a, a connection to the throne. And he, but he wasn't the king. Yeshua had been appointed by Moshe to be the next leader of the Jewish people. And, but Kalev was still very much alive. And so it became a little bit complicated because he was a person who, who was very, very worthy of the throne. A person who came from the tribe of Yehuda, who everyone knew it was going to be the tribe of Yehuda who was going to be the first kings of the Jewish people. And Kalev was the ancestor of that person. And now this was a delicate situation. This Kalev was a force to be reckoned with at the same time Yeshua was the leader. Kalev therefore made a very active point to make a public display of subservience to Yeshua. He didn't want anyone to think that he somehow held himself as a king to be contested with Yeshua, as a force to be reckoned with. He held himself to be entirely subservient to Yeshua. So he came in public. So everyone could watch him ask a request for the land. He said, I can't make this decision on my own. I'm not the king. I'm not the leader. I'm a tribal leader. He was very much the ruler of the tribe of Yehuda, but he held himself in the pecking order to be under Yeshua. So this request in public was him acknowledging in front of all the Jewish people, I'm not the leader of the Jewish people. Yeshua is the king and I hold him. Though I'm his friend and though I'm his same age and though I'm this contemporary and we, we were both students under Moshe and I'm related to Moshe, Yeshua is my superior. It was a massive display, an incredible display, and again, just an incredible testament to the character of, of Kalev, showing you what an incredible person he was and how much sensitivity he had towards Yeshua and towards the Jewish people, letting them understand how, how things worked and how, how, the way that it was. Interesting, on that note, there's a, there's a Tesefta. And the Tesefta says like this, if you look at the different places where Yeshua and Kalev are mentioned in the Torah, you'll notice that Yeshua is always mentioned first. But then there's one section where Kalev is mentioned first, and the Tesefta says this is a proof that they're equal. Kalev and Yeshua were equal in greatness. Kalev wasn't, wasn't some slouch, you know, just to use a, a dramatic word to kind of to, to, to make some, give some context over here. Kalev was incredibly great. He was equal to Yeshua in greatness. The fact that that's the fact that the Torah switches the order around because it didn't matter who was first; they were both they were both equally great. Nonetheless, when it came to when it came time to showing who was the king, who was the leader of the Jewish people, Kalev was willing to to go to Yeshua in public and let everyone see him making a request of Yeshua. So he requested the land of Yeshua, thereby stopping his fellow people in Yehuda thinking that they had any form of claim claim on the city of Hebron and. Also, the rest of the Jewish people, who also really, really wanted to angle towards getting the city of Hebron, it was the holiest city of the Jewish people at that time. So everyone was eyeing it, and and Kalev's request in public quieted that request. No one requested it anymore. They understood this was Kalev's and was given to them, not by Yeshua even. This was something that had been promised before from Moshe in the name of God. Interesting, Kalev said, Moshe promised us. If you look in the Pasuk, if you look in the Torah, it's Hashem. And that leads people to believe that there's part of the story in the Torah that we're actually missing, because Yeshua never corrected him. Which means that Moshe must have also promised to Kalev. It wasn't written in the Torah itself, but now that it was pertinent, Kalev came to Yeshua and said, aside from the fact that God said I'm getting it, Moshe himself promised me as well. And now we know that in addition to Hashem promising Kalev that he'd have the land of Hebron, Moshe must have promised too. 
But that wasn't the only thing that Kalev was requesting. Or Kalev was requesting something else. And the, the second thing that he was requesting was very, very interesting. Kalev requested that when it came to the city of Hebron, he didn't want anyone else to go and conquer it. Hebron was a massive city. It was so large that people were... They're upset that Hebron, that the color was taking the whole thing. They said, let him, let him take a part. Let him take a piece of Hebron. He doesn't need the whole thing. But he wanted the entire city. It was a massive city, which was packed with people. And Kalev, and we'll get to it in a second, the, the catch as well. And Kalev said, I want to be the single person to conquer the city. I want to take a sword. I want to walk into the city with not an army behind me, not anyone to help me, me by myself. And I want to conquer the city all by myself. And just to make the things, the matter a little more complex, Kalev requested that, the, the, the requested to, to conquer the city, and that city had three giants. Just for a little bit of context, giants are not tall people. Giants are skyscraper size. Giants block the sun. The sun wraps itself, when you're looking up at the giant, the sun wraps itself around their neck because they're so high up in the air. We're talking about skyscraper size people. And these three giants were, terrifying the other 11 uh, um, spies didn't go into heaven because they were so scared of the of the of the giants in heaven Kalev, when he came the first time around into heaven he walked right in he wasn't scared in the slightest but these people were terrifying and there were three of them and Kalev said i don't want an army he requested from yeshua authorization to green line a mission where only he himself goes but now he needed to convince yeshua that he was up to the task 45 years earlier, he had been a 40-year-old, you know, at the prime of his strength when he was a spy, when all the other 12, when the other 11 spies and himself went into the land of Israel. It was understandable that, you know, he would be asking a massive request like going to battle on his own. But now he's an 85-year-old man, he's no, young, he's no youngster. And he's asking Yeshua, by the way, I believe in God so much that I have absolutely no doubt that if I go into the city of Hebron, battle the whole city on my own, and the three giants on top of them, I'll be successful in spite of the fact that I'm 85 years old. And he publicly tells you, sure, he says, I'm of physical, of physical strength as I'm 40, but my age, that's advanced. Not my age. My faith has advanced with my age. So though my strength has stopped and I'm still a 40-year-old in strength, even though I'm 85 years old, my faith has continued to amplify and continues to, continues to grow with my age as well. So in that respect, I'm still 85, and I really am 85. But in regards to my physical strength, I'm 40 years old, and I have absolutely no fear. I want to battle for the city on my own. It was a massive ask because, you know, that, that would be, firstly, Kalev was an extremely important person. And secondly, I'm assuming Yeshua did not want to have any forms of wars that were not, you know, not going to be successful. Having a single man go into a city, taking on an entire city on his own, and also taking on three giants on his own, it, it just it seemed like it was it was it was a futile mission. But Yeshua greenlit it. He said, okay. He said, if you really believe because God has promised it to you and because Moshe has promised it to you that nothing will happen to you and you, you're safe to go into the city all on your own and battle all on your own now, all of this opposition without anyone else's help, go ahead. You could do it. And, but before he left, let, before he let, gave him the green light, he said, I want to bless you. And he gave him three different blessings. And it's really beautiful because, again, these, these were very close friends. Yeshua gave Kalev a very public blessing after telling him that the, the land was his. In addition, he said, I want to give you three blessings. Number one blessing was against the evil eye. Kalev had announced his age in public, and the only reason he did that was in order to show that, yes, I'm 85 years old, but I'm like a 40-year-old man. But he had to mention his age. He was 
he was old and strong, and that's a very rare occurrence. And Yoshua and Kalev were both concerned about the eye in horror, about an evil eye. Nowadays, eye in horror isn't a thing that we worry about at all. The Rebbe told us that from the previous generation already, we don't have to worry about the evil eye. But this is thousands of years ago. This was a very big concern. And someone like Kalev, you know, people could have been listening to the conversation and started judging, is Kalev really worthy enough to, to be 85 years old and still be strong like a young man? People said that Asenek would have brought a judgment on Kalev. So Yeshua gives Kalev a blessing and says, you know what, whatever evil eye you've brought upon yourself by mentioning your age in public because he had to, because he wanted to he wanted to fight Hebron on his own, he says, I'm removing it from you. That's your first blessing. Number two, Yeshua gave him a blessing that he could conquer Hebron single-handedly. Kalev was so full of faith and Yeshua was so inspired that he greenlit the mission, but he also gave him a blessing saying, you'll be successful. Just do it, you'll be fine. And number three, a really beautiful blessing is Kalev wanted the land of Israel. And Kalev wanted a massive city all for himself, the city of Kevrain. But he didn't have people to fill it. And Yeshua gave him a blessing. He said, you should have so many descendants to fill up the entire Kevrain. It was a beautiful blessing for Kalev. And it's a blessing that in fact happened. Kalev had a massive family. Kalev goes to war. And it's so interesting. We don't know all the details of the war. We know a little, we know a little bit but we we don't really know much. What we do know is Kalev went uh, went against the city of Hebron and all the giants, the three of them, all but on his own. And there are different opinions about whether Yeshua had originally conquered Hebron and the giants ran away, and then Kalev did it a second time. But then when he when they saw Kalev leave to get busy fighting the rest of the land of Israel, they just came back. And then when Yeshua passed away, Kalev came back and killed them for good. There's a lot of discussions, but there are opinions that say Kalev never killed the giants. He only chased them. They were terrified of him and they ran, but he never actually killed them. And because of the kindness the giants had had on the first time around, when the first spies came and they didn't kill the spies, even though they really could have, they knocked them all unconscious and they, they brought the spies back a lot, back, back to consciousness. Hashem said, you know what? The spies could live. And they, according to one opinion, they lived for another thousand years. They watched the destruction of the second, second base of English, the second temple. But other opinions say, no, Kalev went in during the time of Yeshua, killed the spies, took over the entire city, literally conquered the whole city on his own and became the victor. He would literally conquer the, the city of Hebron. In fact, if you look in the Pesukim, if you look in the verses, you see something really interesting. The, the giants are called the children of Anak. And some rabbis explain because Anak was the father and all the grandfather, and it's a whole discussion. But some people say no. When they went to war against Kalev, they were so insignificant. They were called children. They were giants, 100%, but literally they were like children. Kalev had absolutely no difficulty fighting. It wasn't like it, it, wasn't like it was a hard battle, a hard war, and Kalev had to struggle up as much might and courage. He literally barely had to try. That was it. He won. And just a little bit more before we move on to the, on to the, next, the next section of the story. The, these same giants are the ones who told Sarah many years earlier about the story of Avram. These giants lived for a very long time. They weren't just tremendously massive in size, but they, they also lived very long lives. The origin of the story of the giants is really interesting, a story for another time. But the, they originally came from angels who who questioned humanity and said, well, we're better than humanity. Give us a chance to go into the world and, you know, have an evil inclination. Let's see how we do. And of course they did terribly. But these giants lived extremely long lives. And the giants were around during the times of Avram. We're talking about hundreds of years earlier. And when Sarah saw her husband and her son go one day, 
she went to the giants to ask the giants, where are the, where, where's my husband and my, my son? Where's Avram and Yitzchak? Avram was bringing Yitzchak to, to bring him up on top of the Akedah, to bring him, bring him as a sacrifice. Sarah wasn't informed about this. Avram was very scared of asking her because she was very, he was very troubled about what her answer would be. God told Avram to do it, so he went ahead and did it. Sarah sees they're both missing, so she realizes the best way to work out where they've gone is go to the giants. So she came to the giants, who lived very close by, and she asked the giants to look around. So they looked around. Remember, these people are skyscraper size. And they said, yes, we see him. He's on the top of Haramaria, which was miles and miles away. But we see them with the old man, there's a young man. They're on top of the Mount of Moriah. They're on top of Haramaria. And the old man is tying the young man to a altar, to sacrifice him. According to one opinion, when she heard that, that's what, that's what made her pass away. The shock that Avram was sacrificing her only child, Yitzchak, was too much for her. But there's another version which is really beautiful. Is that when she heard that from the giants, she told the giants, if Avram is doing that, there's no question that God has told him to do it, and that's fine with me. And so they, she, she asked him, what's going on now? And he said, he's, 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 he's tying your son down to the, to the altar. She was fine. And then the giants said, oh, he stopped. And the giant said he's taking Yitzchak off the altar. And she was so horrified that Avram wasn't able to pass the test and do what God had told Avram to do. Now, she didn't know, of course, that Avram had, to- Avram had been told by God, stop, so don't kill your son. All she heard from the giants was that Avram stopped. She assumed that Avram just couldn't see it through. He couldn't kill his own son. And the, the sadness that, that Avram wasn't succeeding at the test that God had given him was too much for her. And that's what actually made her pass away. Regardless, the giants were gone. And the giants never came back. It never became a problem again in the in the city of Hebron, to the best of my knowledge, any form. Even according to opinions that say the giants did survive, most opinions say the giants were killed by Kalev. But even according to opinions that the giants survived, I don't believe we ever hear anything about these giants in the city of Hebron again. They were chased out for good. Kalev moves into the city of, of Hebron and inherits the land of Hebron. And then Kalev looks to a nearby city called Devere. And the city of Devere seemed to be a city that Kalev hadn't intended originally to, to conquer. A, 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 it might have even been a place that Yeshua hadn't intended to conquer. It's a little hard to tell. But the one thing that is certain is Kalev saw this as a military threat of the future. The Canaanim and all the enemies of the Jewish people at that time were terrified of the Jewish people. Yeshua was such an incredible conqueror. I mean, God was literally helping Yeshua along the whole way that no one dared to raise a, raise a finger towards the Jewish people. And, but Kalev understood that because Devere was a military city, and in the future the the enemies of the Jewish people would gather in Devere to 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 rise against the Jewish people, Kalev understood that he needs to deal with this problem now while it's not a problem. And so he put out a he put out an announcement. He said, any person that goes and 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 conquers this base of the Canaanites, they go into the city and they conquer the, the base, they conquer the city of Devere, which was previously known as Kiryas Sefer, they will be able to marry my daughter. Kalev had a son, Chur, who had been killed, who had children of his own, and of course, descendants that continued. But Kalev also had a daughter called Achsa. Achsa is a very strange name. We don't hear many people with that name, which... There should be people with that name. It's a beautiful name. But the name Achsa comes from the word Ka'as, which means angry. And the reason that she's called angry is not because she was angry. She was an incredible person. It's because she was extremely beautiful. And anyone that would see her, they'd come home angry and they would always they would tell their wife, why aren't you as beautiful as Achsa? She was an incredible person. And some people say that her beauty wasn't actually a, a physical beauty, but it was a spiritual beauty. 
And Tosa says it was her modesty that, that made her so beautiful. But the, whatever the case was, she was an exceptionally um, desirable person to get married to because, as you can imagine, her father-in-law is Kala ben Yafuna, and she was an incredible person of her own. And as you can see later on, she has an incredible perception as well of her own. And so he puts out that announcement, any person that goes into the city of Devere, conquers the city, will be able to marry my daughter. It, everyone, everyone wanted to, the opportunity, but no one was no one was brave enough to, to see that through. Kalev had taken on a whole city on his own, but everyone understood Kalev had incredible merits. Everyone else, everyone was terrified to do this. The rabbis actually, there's a Gemara. It's actually, it's, it's not a Gemara. The Gemara. There's another Gemara that doesn't mention Kalev, but there is, there is a Vayikra Rabbah. And the Vayikra Rabbah says there are four people who asked inappropriate of Hashem, or made a swore to do something that was inappropriate, but three of them, Hashem said, you know what, even though you asked inappropriately, I'll still let you, um, I'll still I'll still make it appropriate, the situation appropriate for you. The first person was Eliezer, the servant of Rahom. He comes to the well, and he sees, uh, he sees all these maidens going around, and he's trying to look for a girl, and he says, whoever comes and, and gives water to um, my camels and to myself, they'll be the person to marry Yitzchak. Now anyone could have come by. Someone so inappropriate for Yitzchak to marry could have come to Elias and said, hey, let me help you out. The man was carrying a lot of money. And Hashem said, you know what? I'll do a favor. I'll make the actual person who Yitzchak is supposed to come marry, get married to, she'll be the one that comes to help you out. So Hashem sent Rivka. The same thing happened with King Shaul when he made the request, whoever kills Goliath gets to marry my daughter. Hashem said, I'll have pity on you. I'll let David Amalek be the one to do it. And David Amalek married King Shaul's daughter. Kolev was the third person who had Hashem help him out. That in the in the in, in this case, someone very righteous came and got married to Achsa, conquered the city and got married to Achsa. And the person, unfortunately, who wasn't so lucky, who made a request and it didn't didn't go through, was Yiftach. Yiftach said, "If I'm successful in my war, the first thing that I see, I'll sacrifice to God." And unfortunately, it was his daughter who came to greet him, which ended up becoming an exceptionally tragic story and such a such a disappointment from such an incredible miracle, following such an incredible miracle that Hashem had done for the Jewish people. But in Kalev's case, Kalev was lucky. He had asked for something inappropriate, but Hashem helped him out. And Hashem brought along an incredibly righteous man who took up the offer and went to the city of Devere. And that person was his own relative. It was his, it was his younger brother. Kalev was, as we mentioned in the first class, his father's name was Chetzrin. And very shortly after Kalev was born, Chetzrin, who had been 160, 170 years old at the time, passed away. And his mother got married to a very righteous man by the name of Kanaz, and Kanaz had raised Kalev. In fact, in, in some of the Pesukim, Kalev is literally called Kenizi, the the Kenizzite. Why? Because his father, his stepfather, had been the one to raise him, and he had educated him, and cared for him, and nourished him, and and and, and given love to him. And so the Torah treats the Kanaz like his actual father, because he had raised the young Kalev and given him, you know, given him a, a, a father-like figure. But Kanaz also had an, an an actual son who was, you know, Kalev's half brother. They they shared mothers, and Kanaz, Kalev's stepfather, was the actual father, and his name was Asniel ben Kanaz. Asniel ben Kanaz was later on going to become the first of the judges of the Jewish people, but at this point, he wasn't. At this point, he was a, a, a young man, much younger than Kalev, and he heard about the offer that his older brother, his older half-brother had, had offered, and he decided he's doing it. And he took a sword, he went into the city, which was a military base for the Canaanites. It was, that was the reason why Kalev was so um, 
concerned about it, and he conquered the whole city on his own. It's, it's, we're saying these words as if they're just small feats. It's tremendous. A single person going into a massive military base, a place of gathering of militaries, and just single-handedly conquering the city. And conquering the city means conquering it. Means wiping out every single potential enemy. Osniel ben Kenaz went to the city of Devir, previously known as Kirisefer, and conquered the entire city. And then he came, came back to his brother and said, mission done. I want to marry your daughter. And, uh, and, and Kala bin Yifuna was thrilled. His brother was an incredible person. Kala bin Yifuna didn't have to contend with someone inappropriate marrying his daughter, which could have easily happened. But And the rabbis explained the, the reason why Kalev made this, um, this deal is because he realized the only way someone could possibly conquer something so unbelievably powerful was if, if they had Hashem's help. No single person could conquer a, a city like this, a military base like this, unless Hashem was literally guiding every step of those. So Kalev had no worries making this promise that you get to marry my daughter because he said, someone that has that much help from Hashem to be able to conquer it by themselves, there's no question that they're suitable for my daughter. So some people give Kalev, you know, the benefit of the doubt for making such a possibly reckless um, vow, because they said he 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 knew that he was hedging his bet on the fact that, that such a person would need so much help from Hashem, which means he'll be he need to be fitting for that. Which in this case, Asnil ben Kanaz really was that great. Now it's really interesting. The story of Asnil ben Kanaz marrying Kalev's daughter doesn't end there. It got a little complicated because Asnil ben Kanaz was a man who dedicated his life. A hundred percent to learning Torah. His whole life was nothing but Torah, and that's all he did. And later on, when he became the leader of the Jewish people, people were going to move from their inheritance lands all across the country, literally moving the pitching tents next to Asnil ben Kenaz just to learn Torah from him. He was such a, a power of Torah, and it was his whole life. And Achsa saw that, and she was thrilled to get married to him, but she realized, pragmatically speaking, practically speaking, there was a big problem. Asnil didn't have a penny to his name. And so she told Osniel before the marriage, you need to go to my father and you need to get a dowry. You need to request, you're entitled to that, you're a son-in-law, you're about to get married, you need to go because once you get married, you can't claim anything. So go now before the marriage begins and go to Kalev and tell Kalev, or tell my father that you're entitled to a dowry, he needs to provide for you so you could sit and learn Torah for the rest of your life. And Osniel refused. He said, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to. I want the merit of marrying you and marrying my brother's daughter without any money attachments. I don't want to be connected with 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 um, physicality. And she understood correctly that if Osniel doesn't make, get money, he just won't be able to learn Torah for the rest of his life because he'll have no money and will have to start to work. So Achsa told her fiancé, Osniel, if you don't go to my father, the wedding's off. And she was serious. And he knew he was serious. So he, he was stuck. He didn't want to ask. On the other hand, the whole wedding is being jeopardized. All the, you know, the conquering an entire city and the military base was all on the line now. So she, so he had no choice. So he went to Kalev and he told Kalev, I'm going to ask for a dowry. He, give me a tiny piece of property. I don't need anything more than that. That's it. Just give it to me. Kalev was being asked by his younger brother for a uh, property. He didn't want to humiliate his brother by giving him any more than he had asked. So he gave exactly what Osniel asked for, a tiny plot of land that was basically worthless. In fact, it was going to be worse than worthless. It was just maintenance with no real benefits. But that's what Osniel had asked for, and Kalev didn't want to humiliate him by giving, offering any more than what he had asked for. He said, this, if the, you are only asking for this little, you must have a reason for this. I'm not going to give you any more. So Osniel comes back to his, back to his uh, future wife, Achsa, and says, good news, I got some land. She says, where's the land? The land's a tiny little plot of land, and she tells her where it is. 
And Achsa got so much more upset. She said, that wasn't the idea. The idea wasn't for you to get land. The idea was for you to be able to support yourself so you could learn Torah for the rest of your life and not have to worry about financial issues and burdens. And now she realized that she needs to do this on her own. So she waited for the wedding day. According to one opinion, it was a wedding day when, this, when the drama unfolded. She, she went on a donkey. Purposely, she, she drove to a, to a wedding on a donkey. I don't know if that was, that was the way people did it, but it sounds like from the, from the context of the story that riding on a donkey was not the way that people rode to their weddings. That was like an embarrassing way or a non-fitting way to, to, to ride, but she did it on purpose. She was trying to make a, a, a lesson, just as a donkey. Well, the second the donkey gets hungry, it starts braying and making lots of noise. A family without any food, a wife that doesn't have any, a husband that's bringing home food will get very angry and very upset as well. She tried to make a correlation. And then as she approached the wedding, she fell off her horse. There are people that say that her mind was, you know, she was so bothered by the fact that Osniel hadn't asked her father for a, a, a fitting property of land, a fitting sized land that she, that, you know, she was so b- caught up in her mind that she tripped off and fell. But according to some opinions, no, she really, she fell off on purpose. She was trying to make a point on her wedding day to make a scene. And her father sees her, and her father comes up to her, and she kisses his feet. And now he knows, okay, she's upset. So she asks, Kalev asks his daughter, what's the matter? What, 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 what is, what's the problem? You're at your wedding day, and you, you're, you're upset. Is it because Asneel is not a fitting husband? Is that the reason why? And Achsa says, Asneel is good. He's a very fitting husband. I'm very excited to get married to him. But he's not asking for enough of a dowry, and it's not fair. And so she said, he's a person whose whole life is Torah. All he wants to do is learn Torah day and night. If he doesn't get enough property now, he's just not going to be able to. And the property you gave him is just going to be a nuisance. He's going to have to work that land. It's not going to produce anything because it's, it's, no, it's a tiny plot of land with absolutely no irrigation. You've given him a nuisance instead of helped him out. Kolev heard a complaint and Kolev realized he's right. And so Kalev told her, you know what? I have a, I have, I have a, a, a counteroffer. This field that I, this field that I offered has a reservoir that's higher than the field and a reservoir that's lower than the field. I'll give you that land, which means you could irrigate the field right in. You go irrigate that, that higher reservoir, the higher waters, the lower springs and the upper springs into the field that I gave you, thereby giving so much water to that field, making that field extremely valuable and it will produce an incredible amount of, of, of food. Now that, that that property had gone from being far worse than worthless to being an exceptionally um, handsome gift, which made Achsa extremely happy, and the wedding was back on again. That's, that's, that's again, a beautiful lesson we can learn about, you know, uh, making sure that, you know, a practical, a practical approach to life, which is something that Achsa was able to bring to the table and understand what the future needs and also the future value of her husband. She understood her husband had so much to give to the Jewish people. He was later on going to be the first of the judges of the Jewish people. And she saw that potential in him, but also realized that he's going to need that help to ensure that he has this ability to do, to do his job. That's all one version of the story. And there's another version of the story which is really beautiful. And it's not a conflict. The Marmalais brings it down. The Marmalais actually explains that these, the story I'm about to tell you is not a conflict at all to the, to, to the story that I just told you about the actual war. But they actually, they, they blend seamlessly into each other. There's another opinion that says, after the seven years of war were over, Kalev ben Yafuna realized that there needed to be something to rectify an earlier story. And here goes an earlier story, a story that happened before 
the conquering of the land. Right before Moshe Rabbeinu passes away, he called in his prime student, Yeshua, and he told Yeshua, I'm about to pass away. I believe it was the day that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away. And he told Yeshua, I'm about to pass away. Are there any questions you have, anything you're missing, anything you need to know? And Yeshua felt an affront. He told Moshe, the Torah itself testifies, I never left your tent. I heard everything you said. I was always there. I was always diligent. I always listened. I don't have any questions. I, I don't have any questions because I was, I was absolutely present in every single moment that I was with you. And Yeshua was always with Moshe. So Yeshua tells Moshe, I don't have any questions. Now, for a regular person, and even the greatest person that would have been considered honest and truthful and a very good answer. In the case of Yeshua, because Yeshua was so unbelievably great, it was considered to be some form of um, sin on his part. He could have been a little more humble. Now, he was honest and he was humble, but he could have been a little bit more humble and said, Moshe, perhaps there's something else you want to teach me. I would, be, I would love to listen to it. And because he missed a tiny amount of humility, he was punished. And he forgot 500 laws and 700 laws became unclear. Then Moshe Rabbeinu passes away and the Jewish people were devastated. They were so absolutely broken. And because they were sad and because they were broken, they started forgetting. They started forgetting 3,000 laws were forgotten during the 30 days of the passing of Moshe because people were just so depressed about Moshe Rabbeinu's passing. They just started forgetting laws. 3,000 laws. doesn't sound like a lot when you're dealing with 40 years worth, but these were people who were so dedicated to Moshe. Forgetting a single law was devastating to them, but they, they were calm. They said, we forgot 3,000 law, 3, laws, but no big deal. Yeshua, he never left Moshe. Let's go ask him the questions. And this is where it gets a little, it gets a little interesting, and it gets, the story accelerates, because the second they realized Yeshua had forgotten 500 laws and 700 became unclear, of course he was able to answer some of them that they had forgotten, but there were 1,200 that either were forgotten or became unclear, they wanted to assassinate him. His first day on the job and the Jewish people were so livid that Yeshua had forgotten laws that had been taught to him by Moshe, they wanted to kill him. And they meant it. And Yeshua ran into the tent, screams out to Hashem, Hashem, save me, the Jewish people want to, want to kill me. Hashem, please give me the answers to the questions. And the most fascinating answer comes back to Yeshua. He's a prophet, so God talks back to him. This is his first day of prophecy. And God tells him, God tells him, I'm not going to help you. Torah can only be given by Moshe. Now that Moshe has passed away, Torah cannot be given from heaven. And that was the end of the answer. So she said, what am I doing? Outside the tent, there is, there are, there's a mob that wants to assassinate me. They don't want me to be the leader. They want to kill me, in fact, because I don't know the answers to the questions. So Hashem said, go out there and instruct them to be busy with war. They're dealing with you. Don't contend with them. Just get them busy with something else. You have a war. You have a job to do. Tell them. They have a job to do too. They need to prepare for war. Tell them to start marching. And Yeshua does that. He marches right out of the tent, tells the Jewish people, I know you're angry. I know you want to kill me. Right now we have a job to do. God wants us to conquer the land of Israel. Turn around and start marching. And that's what they did. They forgot about um, uh, killing him. And that became that. And Yeshua desperately wanted to recapture the laws that he had forgotten. And Hashem never gave it to him. He never gave it to him. And the rabbis ask why. Well, some people say that Yeshua just wasn't able to do it. Some people say that Hashem purposely never let Yeshua do it. Why? Because Yeshua was a prophet. So if Yeshua would have come one day and said, I thought really hard and I remembered it, no one would have believed him. What would they have said? They said, Hashem told it to you. And Hashem never wanted the precedent to ever be that someone got Torah and it wasn't Moshe Rabbeinu. The only person who was able to get Torah from heaven is Moses, from Moshe, and nobody else. So now that Yeshua was a prophet, 
Hashem didn't even let him reconstruct the laws, re-remember the laws. He never got it again. And meanwhile, years go by and Kolev is troubled because the Jewish people are missing 1,200 laws from Moshe Rabbeinu that they've been taught and had never yet been discovered. So Kolev puts the word out and says, any person that's able to conquer these 1,200 laws, which means that they're able to use the system that Moshe created of, of, of understanding Torah, Moshe had given them a system of understanding and they could reconstruct the laws that Moshe had given through logic, of course not through prophecy because that would never have worked as is evident in Yeshua, that person will be able to marry my daughter. And Osniel ben Kenaz was the person. He sat and he worked and worked and worked and he was able to reconstruct every single law that had been lost during the passing of Moshe. Every single one, he worked out what it was purely through logic through literally exercising his brain, um, um, working his brain and using the principles of Torah to reconstruct what those 1200 laws were. And people heard them and they were like, oh yeah, that's it. That's exactly the one that it was. And every single one of them he was able to reconstruct. And when he did that successfully, Kalev said, okay, this is the person that gets to marry my daughter. And the Ma'am Lez has no problem saying both of these are true. That he conquered the city and he was the one that got that reclaimed the 500 laws and the 700 laws that had been forgotten and that was the reason why he was able to marry Achsa, marry the the daughter of Kalev. A few interesting ideas to end off the story of Kalev. And this this is really, really fascinating. The Arizal says that Kalev was a Gilgal of Eliezer, the servant of, of Ramavinu. And what's really interesting is when Avraham Avinu is told by Hashem about, uh, about having descendants, Avraham Avinu says, oh, my servant Eliezer is going to inherit me. Why would Eli- Avraham Avinu possibly think that his servant Eliezer, who was a Canaanite, no relation to Avraham in the slightest, would inherit him? Slaves don't inherit their master. Relatives of the master inherit that slave and all their belongings as well. So why did Avraham possibly think that Eliezer would be the one to inherit him? The, the Bnei Yisaskar says... Avram Avinu looked in Elias and saw that there was going to be a reincarnation in the future of a person who would inherit his land. Where did Avram live? Hevrain, Kiryas Arba. And he saw in the future that the person who's going to inherit Elias's soul, Kalev ben Yifun, would be the person to inherit. So Avram said, naturally, Elias is going to inherit me. But Avram also said, I don't just want the inheritance to go by way of the soul in the future. I also want to have a son who will be able to be a future to me, which is... Yitzchak getting married to Rivka and continuing the Jewish people. But Avram seeing it, the future was still correct. Eliezer, in fact, was the inheritor of the land of Hebron by extension of him being the same soul as Kalev many years later, which is a beautiful explanation. And one other beautiful thing, now that we're tying this in with the, the reincarnation of Kalev, it also makes perfect sense. When Kalev was dealing with a difficulty and he was listening to the spies and he was trying to give himself some fortitude and not get influenced by his friends who were telling him, let's rebel against Moshe, let's say bad reports. And Kalev felt himself slipping. He needed to get strength. His reincarnation knew where he needed to go. He needed to go to his Rebbe, to Avram Avinu. Because he felt inside of him, his previous Gilgal, Eliezer's Rebbe, Eliezer's teacher was Avram Avinu. So now Kalev says, okay, I need to get some fortitude. He was in Israel. He was right next to Avram Avinu's burial. So where does he go? He goes to Hebron, he goes to Avram Avinu, so his, his soul could get that nourishment, that strength to be saved from the spies. Another, another um, footnote of uh, epilogue of the story. Kalev and Yafuna had been married to Miriam, and he had the son Chur, and Kalev had rehabilitated uh, Miriam at the beginning, you know, and 
it brought her back to health and she was beautiful again and had an incredible oration. Her Miriam passed away. And I'm not sure when, but there's a Gemara that says that Kalev also got married to Basya, the daughter of Pari. Right at the beginning of the story, it talked about the daughter of Pari going to the Nile and she converted. She converted and joined the Jewish people and she left the, with the Jewish people, even though her father... Paroi was trying to destroy the Jewish people. She left the Jewish people and became a righteous convert of, to the Jewish people. And later on, she marries Kalev. And what's so interesting is, if you look in Divrei Hayamim, the last book of the Torah, you'll see Kalev gets married to Basia and they have a whole bunch of children. And the rabbis say those children are not the actual children. It's all of those names are a reference to Moshe because Basia the daughter of Pari had raised Moshe for so many years until Moshe had escaped to Midian and to Africa, etc. She was considered like the mother to Moshe. And Kalev got married to her. And Hashem said, it's so fitting. Basia had rebelled against her whole house, against all her, all her influences in her life. She had stayed strong. She had been had fortitude. Kalev was exactly the same way. He was called married because he rebelled against the advisors and the spies. So this, this marriage was such a perfect marriage. And Kalev got married to Basia, the daughter of Pari. Later on, Basia never passed away. She entered Gan Eden while still alive, one of the only people in history to never actually die, to go up to, to heaven alive. Kalev passed away, we don't know when. But what we do know, there is a tradition, and I'm not sure where the tradition comes from, but it's a tradition that's a few hundred years old, that Kalev wasn't buried in his own land or in Hebron. He was buried next to Yeshua ben Nun in a place called Timas, Timnas Serach, in a place where in Yeshua's property, next to where Yeshua ben Nun is buried, next to where Nun, the father of Yeshua ben Nun is buried, Kalev is also buried there. People don't know when Kalev's um, day of his passing is. It's in Harafraim. But people don't know when his day of his passing is. So what people do to this very day, it's very dangerous, and it's in the West Bank, but people go on the Pasha, Pasha Shlach Lecha, on the, on, the, on the week that we read the story of the spies, People go escorted by soldiers to this very day. They go to the burial place in Har Ephraim where Kalev is laid to rest, and they they spend time at his at his burial place and they pray. 